Welcome to the Aileen Burford Mason podcast. I'm Gavin McGarry in Los Angeles. Today's episode is Food Basics. What has happened to our food and does it matter? Welcome, Aileen. Hi, Gavin. Good to be here. Now, the research says that 70% of chronic illnesses, and I could not believe this number, 70%. I thought maybe 40%, maybe 30%, like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and stroke are linked to deteriorating diets. Uh, so this being episode one, what's happened to our food? It's changed. It's changed a great deal from uh, the diets that we would have evolved on. Um, for countless years, we lived on a natural diet, what we could hunt, what we could gather. Uh, later on, we became farmers, and maybe about 10,000 years ago, when we observed that uh, we could preserve food like grains, we could plant the seeds out and grow large fields of grain instead of a few handfuls here and there. And so our food has changed over millennia. Uh, but the big change has come uh, in recent years with the what we call ultra-processing of food. So as food became a commodity, um, and profit was to be made. We wanted to be able to store it better. We wanted to be able to transport it better. We wanted to be able to make palatable food um, without a lot of cost, with a big profit margin. And so basically, it's the industrialization of our food that's become the problem. Mm -hmm. So we talk about ultra-processed foods, where basically you're taking foods to a factory and you deconstruct them into their constituents and then somehow put them back together again. But they don't have the same response in our body. What they're made is to be hyper palatable. So they really appeal to us. Um, and they, you know, they want manufacturers of food want us to eat a lot. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they displace the natural foods the fruits and vegetables, um, the natural, the fish, the nuts and seeds and things that used to be part of the mainstay of our diets. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have these ultra-processed foods. Because they're altered in this deconstruction and recombining, they basically do not represent the natural foods we were eating. They are short of things like protein. And apparently, we dr we have a drive for protein. We're largely made from protein, and I think we're going to talk about that in a future podcast, um, our, our need for protein. But that's one of the theories that we will eat and eat and eat because we want to get more and more protein, and it's fairly sparse in these industrialized foods. So we're talking about soft drinks, packaged snacks, commercial breads and cakes and cookies, and uh, sweetened or even unsweetened breakfast cereals, um, sugary milk, um, fruit drinks, um, things like substitutes for uh, natural fats like margarine and, and uh, so forth, ready-to-eat meals. These are all, they're, they're not the same as if we were home cooking them ourselves from real basic ingredients. Unfortunately, that is seen, does seem to be at the root of all of the major diseases that we're faced with today. Mm -hmm. uh, the heart disease, 
Type 2 diabetes, do you know type 2 diabetes used to be called age-onset diabetes because it was only seen in the elderly? But now it's occurring at younger and younger ages, and you have teenagers who have type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. So we can blame the changing nature of our food. And people seem to eat a lot of this ultra-processed food or, or processed food. And, and I'm, I'm just before we move on a little bit, what's the difference between processed food and ultra-processed? Well, processing is just changing the nature of it. So cooking is a process. Uh, freezing is a process. It's when you actually take apart the food, mm -hmm. change it, take elements out of it, and because you've taken elements out of it, you change the taste. So you put artificial chemicals, etc., in to change the flavor, the texture, etc. It's this industrialization of food that's the problem. So these are what we call the ultra-processed foods. And you know, it, it, it's it's true that people will talk about when you go to the supermarket, you eat around the edge of the supermarket because that's where the meat is. The, poultry is, the fish is, the fruits are, the vegetables are, the herbs and spices are. In the center, this multiply packaged food, uh, I think that's almost a giveaway that when you see lots of packaging, it's probably ultra-processed. Also, one little thing, a clue that you can find, if you pick up something, we should be reading in labels now and ingredients. So multiple ingredients, particularly if they're chemical terms. Mm -hmm. So if they're in your food, uh, they've been put in in a factory and that will mean it's an ultra processed food. I like the idea of, you know, no more than five ingredients in a food. Canadians and Americans eat a lot of processed food. You were giving me some numbers before. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, there are studies now looking at the uh, the ac actual amount of ultra-processed food, and they um, have been, at one point, uh, there was a study that suggested that 61% of Canadians were eating mainly processed food, ultra-processed food. Uh, it's so easy. You know, I, I remember years ago when I was running a laboratory, and I would have students, medical students, come in and do little research projects for a few months. And I'd listen to the conversations in the morning, and I would be so shocked at how these young men were eating. And they were largely young men in that particular laboratory. They would come in and they would have a donut and a coffee or a muffin and a coffee. That would be their breakfast. At lunchtime, they would go to a food court nearby where they'd have a slice of pizza and a can of Coca-Cola. All processed foods so far, ultra-processed foods. And then in the evening, it, it was so where are you guys going to eat dinner? Oh, we're going to the pub for, for wings and, uh, and, and a beer. So there was really very little fresh fruit, no fresh fruit food in their daily eating. And maybe some of the wings weren't that bad, and, but if there were things like chicken nuggets, I can tell you that they have been deconstructed and reassembled and additives added, etc. And so we would consider them ultra-processed food. 
So that would be a day's eating um, for, you know, medical students. Uh, it was really shocking to me. Now, I don't want to scare everybody, but you and I have had the discussion off air that you have a huge issue with people eating pizza and that you say that some of your clients come in and say that pizza is a food group, but you say it is not. I think a lot of people think that, you know, the cheese is maybe protein and the bread is some carbs and then there's maybe some vegetables on top and some meat that, that actually pizza could be the perfect food, but you say no. Well, indeed, uh, it is ultra processed. The average pizza, that's not to say that it isn't possible at home to make a, a healthier pizza. But what is the hallmark of ultra processed food? It's higher in salt, it's higher in sugar. And one of the things people don't realize is starchy foods, these white breads and the, the doughy bread base of the pizza. Starch is just long chains of glucose molecules. It doesn't taste sweet because it doesn't become sugar till it's digested. And, and there's a little thing that I used to do with small kids, or not small kids, but students um, at school, um, just to show them this. In saliva, there is an enzyme, amylase, that will break down starchy foods into their sugar molecules, glucose. And so if you take a piece of bread, chew it, mix it with saliva, don't swallow it, and just keep it in your mouth, chewing it from time to time, over about five or 10 minutes, you will find it becomes sweeter and sweeter and sweeter until you're going, yuck, that doesn't taste like bread. So it becomes, so that's just to prove that this is what starch will become. So there's the base of your pizza. The other hallmark of ultra-processed foods is they're much higher in salt and they're much higher in fat. So here you have um, the fat of the cheese, often very inferior cheese, um, you know, ch cheese text, really, it's, it's hardly cheese at all. Mm. Vegetables, sure, you might have two or three slices, but we're not talking about minimal intake of vegetables. That hardly counts. Um, what you want is um, really considerable amount of vegetables. Vegetables and fruit should be the core of every meal that you eat. Now, between 1975 and 2008, I have some research that says the number of products in the average supermarket swelled from an average of 8,948, so about 9,000 products in 1975, to almost 47,000 thousand products, according to the Food Marketing Institute, a trade group here in the U.S. Can you just talk a little bit about, it? Are, are we getting better at making food or it seems that the obesity crisis has grown as the number of products that have appeared in our supermarkets? Well, indeed, you know, the problem is these foods are affordable because they're made from the cheapest of ingredients. They're hyper palatable, as I said before, we like them. Uh, so um, they're very convenient. They're easy to consume. They're easy to pick up. A packet of chips is easy to pick up if you're hungry. Um, so basically that's one of the reasons. You know, I think the most interesting area of research for me uh, to look and see how damaging these types of foods might be 
is to look at what we call transition societies, societies that are shifting from a more natural diet. So there's a particularly good study going on in Bolivia where there are tribes that actually have zero heart disease. They are mixed farming, horticulture, and hunter-gatherers. So they eat various jackrabbits and birds and fish, a lot of fish and eggs, but then they farm as well. Mm -hmm. They work very hard and they actually eat a lot of food. Their BMI, their, 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 their weight relative to their height, is actually at the higher end of the normal range. So they're not skinny, skinny. Now you can see where the researchers have been lucky enough to start studying them and see why on earth do they have like zero heart disease. That's unheard of. Um, they are studying them as supermarkets start to appear and transition. Now in those tribes, there is no change in their basic diets they add in these supermarket ultra-processed foods because they like them, they're convenient, they're cheap. Mm -hmm. And they still carry on. It's not a change of exercise. They work hard. They're still working hard. So the only change is that they now have access to these ultra-processed foods. And so their weight is going up, their blood pressure is going up, their cholesterol is going up, their risk of type 2 diabetes, obesity, and heart disease are all increasing. So, I mean, that's a natural experiment, if you like, because it's almost, it's impossible to do that real experiment, uh, uh, you know, in communities today. You'd have to say, here, we're going to put a group on a really bad diet, and you've got to stay on that for 20 years, mm -hmm. and, you know, we'll put this other group on a good diet. You can't do those studies. So we look for these natural experiments. That, to me, is all the proof we need that ultra-processing of food has really been what's driven the dramatic rise in obesity, which we're watching happen in front of our eyes. In real time, we're seeing this happen. So then talk a little bit about what the difference is between diet and nutrition. I think people would be interested to understand yeah. that. Well, that is, you know, is where I think we, we, we have to go right back and say, why do we need to eat? Not why do we want to eat, but why do we need to eat? The only real need to eat is to get into us every day the basic essentials that our body uses for its metabolism, for repair, for maintenance. We're made from food. I mean, you don't look at your dinner plate and go, oh, that's going to be hair, that's going to be nails, you know, but that's the reality. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous to say that, but it is the reality. We are what we eat. Mm -hmm. And so what do we need to get in? We need to get in every day protein. We need to get in fat. Uh, as far as carbohydrates is concerned, do you know what the uh, requirement for carbohydrates is? The official requirement for carbohydrates? No idea. Zero. What? Okay. We think about them giving energy. For sure they do. But we can use both fat and protein for energy too. So they're the non-essential component, except that there is a difference between their two categories of carbohydrates. So you talk about fruits and vegetables, which many people don't consider carbohydrates. They are carbohydrates. 
and they are the ones that really can give us steady inputs of energy, but they also bring many chemicals with them, trace chemicals pleasant, present in plants that have huge benefits for our health. So we call them phytochemicals, phytos just being Greek for a plant, and those phytochemicals, we're aware of them because they're the chemicals in plants that give them their attractiveness, their, their color, their aroma, their flavor. And so in a natural environment, we would be attracted to them. Unfortunately, often in ultra-processed foods, they're replaced with artificial flavors and artificial chemicals that look like the natural, that smell like natural, that taste like natural, or more or less, but they don't have the same benefits. Um, in the plants, they're actually protecting the health of the plant. And when we eat them, we gain some of the protection. A plant has to fight disease. And so they make their own antibiotics, antivirals, antifungals, because that's what they're fighting all the time. Mm-hmm. We eat those plants, we have these natural antimicrobials in our system. A plant can't look at its watch and say, you know what, I've been out in the sun now for two hours. Maybe I should get in the shade for the rest of the day. Mm. Can't do that. It's stuck growing where it's growing. So therefore, the plant makes its own sunscreen. And the plant, those sunscreens turn out to be what we call antioxidants that protect delicate tissues from damage. So when we're eating high plant-based diet, we a plant-rich diet, we are getting all of these extra benefits. On the other hand, the starchy foods are what have become the basis for all these ultra-processed foods. They become both sugar and starch, and uh, so those give energy without giving as many of these benefits. Yeah, because I mean, there was a time in our history, you know, a couple hundred years ago when sugar was very expensive, you know, it was just to, to be able to get a little bit of it was, was you know, something that was a luxury. And now it's it's everywhere and in everything. I, I guess on the ultra processed food side, is there anything that's, you know, when you're telling people what they should eat and how they should eat, how they should choose their food, it seems that the ultra processed foods, they make it look healthy but it's also very inexpensive. So okay. how do you, you know, when people come to you and say, well, I don't have a lot of money, I, I would like to eat healthy, what, what do you tell them? Well, actually, you know, there've been a lot of discussion about, okay, it's all very well to tell people to eat good natural food, but it'll be too expensive for most people. And there were some studies challenging that. It depends. Um, there are a number of problems. One problem is particularly in North America, Many, many people don't know how to cook. So they can't avail themselves of a lot of vegetables, particularly vegetables in season, are very cheap. Mm-hmm. And look at carrots. A carrot's not multiply wrapped. It's not taken apart and put back together again. Um, so basically, there's no labor gone into doing that. So a carrot is very cheap. It's a good natural food. But a lot of people don't know how to cook a carrot. So that's the problem. It's actually learning how to cook food ourselves at home. I, I, again, I'm very shocked by uh, a number of people, particularly young people, who have no clue 
how to to use a stove. <laughs> they wouldn't know what a pot was for. Oh no, uh, I, I've met I've met I didn't think they existed, and I met some people like that literally did not boil. Well, they knew how to boil water, but it was like that sort of level. I guess the the big question for me a little bit is that I eat quite a bit of organic food. It's very expensive, and people are like, "Well, there's no difference between organic and regular." And I, I bought some regular carrots and some organic carrots, and I could see why people wouldn't want to eat regular carrots. There's two key things that we're, we're talking about. One is pesticides. There's a lot of pesticides that are put in this big agricultural monocrop type scenario. But actually, when I was eating the organic versus the regular, there was it was it was a very big difference. And I think that when you grow up, that most vegetables were pretty much the same. They were essentially organic. But now today, there's such a difference in taste. Is that one of the maybe one of the reasons? That's interesting because remember I said these phytochemicals in plants, which is what we're after for good health, that they give flavor and they give aroma and they give color. So basically the more aroma there is, the more flavor there is to something. We've all heard people say, oh, that tomato I buy in the supermarket, it's not like the one my grandfather grows in his garden, the organic, the one from the garden tastes so much better. That means there's more phytochemicals there. And essentially what it means is if you put herbicides and pesticides on a plant, the plant was making its own herbicides and pesticides in the form of these phytochemicals. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the plant doesn't need to do that. So the herbicide and pesticides, not only are there chemicals there that our body has to eliminate, there are also fewer of these phytochemicals giving flavor, giving aroma. So you will see a lot of difference uh, when you taste one versus the other. So a, a tip that you might, um, uh, you might look into, there is an organization in the States that actually puts out every year a list of fruits and vegetables called the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen. Okay. So they assess these um, plants every year to see how much in the way of herbicides and pesticides they have. So the clean 15 are those where the level is so low, you don't have to worry about them. So you could make the bulk of your eating from that list. And the dirty dozen are those that you either find organic and pay for it, or you avoid them um, and just see what you can eat from the other lists. So... That's a way of saving money. But I don't think even though there may be herbs and pesticides on fruits and vegetables, it's not an excuse for not eating them. You know, you can't say, oh, I, I can't afford organic, therefore I'm not going to eat fruits and vegetables because there's another interesting twist to this story. Um, the These pesticides and herbicides, the man-made chemicals that we need to eliminate from our body. They're difficult to eliminate. They're fat soluble and they settle down in fat in our tissues. Um, we can eliminate them, but we need to trigger genes in the liver that will detoxify from them, that help us detoxify from them and eliminate them. Believe it or not, those genes don't get switched on without a high intake of fruits and vegetables. So the oh. very phytochemicals itself stimulate the liver to help us detoxify. Mm -hmm. So it, it isn't a sort of uh, your fallback position. 
um, if you're saying, okay, I can't afford organic. And I think uh, I often see organic very little difference in price from the conventional. Uh, but if there is, you can't say, okay, I'm going to give up fruits and vegetables altogether. It, 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 health demands a high intake of fruits and vegetables. Hmm. Yeah, I think that it's, you know, with today's, you know, most people living in cities and the time crunch, uh, I think that, you know, I, I, I'm guilty of it as well too. You know, you're tired, you've had a long week, you don't really want to think about cooking. Um, you know, I've learned so much from you and I, I cook very simply now. I just, you know, have meat and, and vegetables and, and, and it's very, if you don't think about sauces and you just want things like a, you know, a piece of chicken is very easy with some salt and pepper on it. If you buy good food, you, you have to do very little to it to make it taste delicious because it's already taste delicious. And as you know, I worked at an organic farm during COVID and I could pull a carrot right out of the ground and brush it off and eat it. It was, it tasted so delicious. And I know that the farmer that owned the organic farm used to do it when kids came by for schools and he had one woman uh, come up to say, please don't do that. You shouldn't do that. You have to wash it off. He goes, no, you don't. This is how you're supposed to eat um, plants. It's the way our ancestors certainly would have, you know, plucked things from trees and pull them out of the ground and eat them straight away. But that ground was different. It wasn't saturated with uh, artificial fertilizers, et cetera. And uh, there were no crop spraying. Uh, well, there would have been with some natural, um, not very toxic sprays. But mostly, um, a, a gardener will tell you there are ways to grow crops, uh, mix them that can pr they protect each other basically from you know uh, bugs and and microbes. Uh, so, I think that. Plant-based food is what's really, that's being displaced by all this ultra-processed food. Once you fill yourself up, and I don't think you stay full for very long mm. on uh, ultra-processed foods, try, try eating a, a bag, a large bag of chips and washing it down with a can of, uh, of cola. Um, basically, find out how hungry you are an hour or so later, and you are hungry. Mm. Uh, so they don't fill you up except temporarily, but they stop you going to the fruit and vegetable aisle and buying those uh, foods. But, you know, I go back to the original point I made, Gavin, you have to know how to prepare them. And I would love to see much more in the way of community kitchens, of ways of getting people together to cook meals and mm. learn from each other. Uh, the way, you know, previous generations would have done anyway. It is really sad and shocking that people, uh, for, I'll give you an example of the sort of level of, of, of lack of knowledge about food. I often talk to people about um, the difference between above ground vegetables and below ground vegetables in terms if they want to um, have a, you know, a lower carbohydrate content because below ground vegetables are storage sites for starch and they can be more starchy. Not that they can't be eaten correctly. Um, but people will say to me, what do you mean by above ground and below ground? Like they don't even, can't visualize how their food was actually grown. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that some of these school projects are doing very nicely and getting kids, kids love to grow stuff and they love to eat what they've grown. 
and you find kids are a lot less fussy about food that they've chosen themselves if they've gone shopping with the parents or they, they've actually helped grow and harvest. As we wind down here, this first episode, I, um, I'd like to sort of bring out something that you love. You love quotes. So um, I have a quote from poet and farmer Wendell Berry uh, that you said really resonates for you. And I thought I would get you to elaborate on it. He wrote, people are fed by the food industry, which pays no attention to health and are treated by the healthcare industry, which pays no attention to food. Why do you love this quote so much? Well, I think it encapsulates my entire experience over the course of many, many years. So if you go to the food companies and talk to them about what we require out of our food, what we need to keep us from getting sick, the vitamins, the minerals, the essential fats, the proteins, etc., that we need to get those in. Our body can't function without them. They don't understand it. They have loads of scientists, but they call them food scientists. And they do not know anything about health. Their job is as scientists to make that food as palatable as possible for as little money as possible to help it travel, you know, travel large distances to stay uh, a loaf of bread to stay on the f shelves for weeks rather than, you know, be consumed the day it's it's baked. So that's their job. They don't know anything about health whatsoever. And really, they get quite hurt at the idea that, that, that people are criticizing their foods because as long as they taste good and look good, they're happy about them. But then we go to the medical profession. And unfortunately, food and the requirement for nutrition. So we just almost started talking about the difference between diet and nutrition. Diet is just what people eat. Nutrition says, does this nourish my body? So basically, doctors have not been taught at medical school how to uh, how food is used by the body. Mm. Now they're faced with 70% of their patients coming to them saying, you know, I've got type 2 diabetes, I've got obesity, etc., which is largely based on lifestyle and particularly diet. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to help that patient. We have surveys here, at least in Canada, and I'm sure it's the same in the States, of medical students saying they're graduating with not enough knowledge to be able to discuss nutrition with their patients. So we have these two worlds where, you know, the medical profession know nothing about food and the food industry know nothing about health. And I think there is that big quandary we're faced with until we can get um, the general population. I think it's going to have to start with us as individuals looking mm -hmm. and searching for the right diet that will keep us healthier for longer. Um, then there will be pressure on the food industry because we'll vote with our feet. We will buy the foods that they're producing. And there will be pressure on medicine as well to say, you're spending our healthcare dollars um, treating something and you're leaving out the biggest element of all. And that is the food people are eating. 
Could you also just talk a bit about, because we've talked offline a little bit about you train a lot of doctors in nutrition. And I was a bit shocked at how little training doctors, medical doctors get about food. Well, I teach continuing medical education courses. And those, those are courses that doctors choose to come to. So already their interest has been sparked. They don't get it in their regular training. Uh, so the last survey that was done there was a, um, a, a, a recommendation for medical schools across North America to have a minimum of 25 hours, like in an entire medical education, of nutrition education. But for 25 hours over, like, what is it, four years or five years? Or? Well, uh, uh, yes, for their, their postgraduate degree. Um, but basically, they don't even fulfill that. Many medical schools coming at about 18 or 19 hours. So the demand is there, certainly from the students, um, but the medical schools haven't been able to evolve fast enough um, to you know, develop systems of teaching. The teachers aren't there to do it. So this is really shocking. You know, I, I always say, if we trained engineers and architects with no knowledge of the materials they use to build maintain and repair the buildings. What would be happening? Cities would be falling round, down around our, 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 as we stand there. Mm. And yet we train doctors with no knowledge of the materials the body uses to grow, to repair, to maintain itself. What are they taught in these 25 hours? Like, what, what do you have any idea, like an overview? <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing as undergraduates, here at least, they have to do biochemistry. Mm -hmm. So, biochemistry is really looking at chemistry of the body, how the body creates energy out of food, how the body puts itself to sleep, how the body controls blood cholesterol levels or blood pressure or blood sugar, etc. So they do have to do an undergraduate course in biochemistry. One of the reasons I find them such an easy group to teach is because in the back of their mind, they have this knowledge. They were never encouraged, though, to see it as part of their treatment, their clinical work. So they do know that the body uses these nutrients. And once you draw their attention to it, teaching them is very simple because you watch a whole group of doctors, their faces sort of look surprised and you can see the light bulbs go on and think, this is very relevant to my patients. So, you know, we talk about type 2 diabetes, so where people can't control their blood sugar and that has knock-on consequences that are unbelievable in terms of bad health. So you're looking and searching for a drug that will control it. And it doesn't seem obvious that if you can't control blood sugar, mm -hmm. uh, you take out the foods that are pushing it off in the first place. So that is such an obvious thing to be doing. But believe it or not, that becomes controversial. Um, that, you know, you it's a low starch, no sugar diet that will bring down your blood sugar. Like it's not rocket science. But it's because it's, of the training has excluded that sort of thinking. Yeah, they, I guess we move 
from you know fix it when there's a, when it's on fire rather than trying to prevent the fire. Exactly, exactly. And so uh, interesting in here in Ontario where I am in Canada, um, I saw an interesting statistic recently. All of this nutritional talk would lead us to spend more money on preventative medicine. As you say, you know, don't wait for the fire to put it out, prevent the fire in the first place. And it, with our massive budget for health, 0.035% of that budget is spent on preventative medicine. So this is, you know, now we have such a problem with disease to take the budget away from there and leave people who are sick without any support and start, fill, you know, sort of funneling it into preventative medicine. That's a huge political issue. So it does, it does become political. But I think these are big questions. I think as individuals, uh, we can start to do it for ourselves. We really have to focus on eating real food as near to nature as it was grown. So you're talking about vegetables and fruit. Think about your hunter-gatherer ancestors. They would have been easy. That was the food that was around you. You didn't have to run and chase it. Mm -hmm. So that was your first food. And then things like nuts and seeds in their natural form. And then you would have craved protein. So you would have gone after fish and animals and you would have eaten eggs, etc. And that's a natural diet in the form that it was in nature, not processed and changed in a factory. So now we, I think we can get back. It's a simpler way. You just said it. It's a simpler way of eating. Once you learn to cook simple dishes, um, and that would be, you know, if I had a magic wand, I would be setting up all of these community kitchens. Uh, I'd be going into university residences and saying, okay, there's a group kitchen down the hall and we all get together there and there's somebody who knows how to do it uh, and we're going to cook real food from real ingredients. So, but I don't have that magic wand. I just have to work person by person. They will all dial the pizza place and just get pizza sent to them. <laughs> but you know what, Aileen, you've just given me a great idea. Maybe we should we should maybe do an online virtual cooking with Aileen. <laughs> once a week, you can cook for an hour a simple meal. I, I think, you know, it might, might be something that could catch on. Thank you so much for this uh, first episode. We've got five more episodes to go. So I'm very excited about those and 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 people can see those on your website. In the next episode, we will be talking about dietary supplements. Do we really need to take them? Do we really need dietary supplements? I don't know, Aileen. Well, listen into the podcast. <laughs> I would say yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would say yes. For more information on Aileen, her work, and her books, go to her website, aileenburfordmason.ca. That's aileenburfordmason.ca. Thank you for listening. Bye for now, Gavin.